Okay, so I want to welcome everybody, uh, those both here and watching remotely. Uh, so uh, the next thing, I've, they route out everything because that's really good, because I'm not dependable. So uh, next thing is introductory remarks for Mark Dewhurst, and that's tough because he's extraordinary. Uh, so I'll just give a, a very brief uh, introduction. He got his both his Doctor of Veterinary Medicine and his Ph.D. at Colorado State University. Uh, the Ph.D. is in radiation biology. At that time, it was probably the world's leading place for radiation biology. Uh, still is pretty strong, but it was extraordinary. And... Uh, and uh, I suspect that Mark is the most distinguished product from that program. Uh, he spent five years at Arizona, uh, and then uh, in 1984 stopped at Duke. Uh, he has not left Duke yet, uh, and uh, has had a. Uh, he started as an assistant professor. He's currently the Gustavo Montana Professor of Radiation Oncology. Uh, he also has uh, appointments in the veterinary school in biomedical engineering and pathology. Uh, he has an increasing role in very constructive administration. Uh, uh, administration is not always a good word at this institution. Uh, however, his is very constructive, particularly in mentoring. Uh, he has more than 540 refereed publications in very high-quality journals. Uh, he's a world-renowned leader in hyperthermia and oxygen and many associated areas. Uh, the, uh, the one caution I have is the last time I was involved in inviting Mark here was on 9-11, and uh, we're hoping uh, that he doesn't repeat what he caused at that time. Uh, so, uh, let me move to Mark's talk. He's a highly valued expert, friend, informal collaborator whose wisdom and knowledge I think you'll see in the following talk and in the informal meetings that he's having. I'm now supposed to read the following conflict of interest statement. Doctor, it reads, Dr. Dewhurst does not have any financial interests. I thought that was not correct, so we say that Dr. Dewhurst does not have any financial interests in the material that he is presenting. Uh, he does not intend to discuss off-label or investigational uses of a product or device. He is not receiving direct payments from a commercial entity with respect to this activity. For those of you who are getting CME credit, please use the activity code displayed outside the room after the presentation. And we'll have questions and answers at the end. Mark, it's a great pleasure to introduce you. Thank you, Tom. Can everybody hear me okay? All right. Uh, it's a pleasure to be here, and I, I have to say it was a little bit strange to come back to... Uh, to, to Dartmouth after having spent a week here after 9-11, not being able to leave town. Uh, but I did man manage to get home eventually. Um, the, uh, so what I'm going to talk about today is largely unpublished work. Um, and it's uh, work that I've been working on, some work we've been doing in the last couple of years, uh, looking at how exercise or physical activity affects the tumor. And uh, it's pretty interesting. So hopefully you'll after I'm done, you all want to go out and go running. That's my, my goal, is to motivate everybody. So, um, so uh, just to reiterate, I have no conflicts related to this presentation. So uh, I want to talk first about what the impact is of exercise on cancer mortality post-diagnosis. And uh, this is epidemiologic data. Um, and these are meta-analysis results looking at relative risk of dying uh, for patients who are sedentary versus those that uh, exercise. And, uh, and you can see for both uh, colorectal cancer, if I get this pointer to work. Uh, I don't know. It doesn't seem to show up there. Maybe I can do it this way. 
Yeah. So uh, the relative risk for uh, breast cancer post-diagnosis and colorectal cancer post-diagnosis is uh, 0.5. So uh, the risk of dying if you exercise is about 50% uh, compared to patients who don't exercise. And later on, I'll define what I mean by that in terms of uh, how much exercise is enough. Um, there is also data on prostate cancer as well, very large epidemiologic data. So uh, there's no question that being involved in physical exercise after diagnosis of cancer does make a difference. The question is why? That's the question. So um, how does cancer, we could speculate about how cancer therapy could affect cardiopulmonary fitness. That is one, one risk factor that's involved. And um, so um, you know, as a patient, one would come in with some baseline uh, uh, level of cardiovascular risk, risk factors, and then after cancer diagnosis, uh, there's going to be physical activity, that, inactivity that occurs just as a result of the, the treatment being given and changes in body composition and the, the effects of the, of the treatment on, on the patient. And those, all of those things uh, contribute together to decrease cardiovascular reserve. And uh, down the road, then, the risk of coronary vascular disease goes up. And um, so I'm going to give you some uh, data to support that. Um, this is uh, data from my colleague, Lee Jones, looking at the uh, relationship of cardiopulmonary fitness with survival of women with metastatic breast cancer. So here, he's looking at patients who have a VO2 peak of less than 1%. 0.09 versus a VO2 peak of greater than 1.09. That's a, a, a test that's done on a treadmill. And so patients who had a VO2 peak greater than 1.09 have a significantly increased survival. So this is a single point in time study, just a cross-sectional analysis, looking at uh, uh, patients with uh, metastatic breast cancer. And there's definitely a difference in survival depending on cardiopulmonary fitness. Um, and this is also known that um, over time, uh, a breast cancer patient uh, has a decreasing risk of dying of breast cancer, but at about eight or nine years, the risk of dying of cardiovascular disease goes up. So those two, those two things cross each other. And that's largely due to the fact that these patients got uh, treatment, particularly doxorubicin, which has chronic effects on the heart. And if they have a left-sided breast cancer, they may have also gotten radiation damage to part of the heart as a result of that. The right-sided breast cancer is not true, but on the left side, uh, there is, uh, unless you're extremely careful, you irradiate part of the, the heart as part of radiotherapy. Um, so um, this is looking at <coughs> the VO2 peak, uh, looking at breast cancer patients three years after treatment. And uh, this is uh, what happened. This is age. This is looking at the... Oh, thank you. That's better. So uh, this is uh, looking at the uh, VO2 peak for, for uh, patients who are age-matched. Um, and this is what happens three years after a diagnosis of breast cancer. So the... Uh, VO2 peak, as you can see, goes down. So their cardiopulmonary reserve goes down, and it goes down by about a factor of two. Um, and this is interesting because if you look at the end, as we age, our cardiopulmonary fitness goes down. It declines over time as we get older, and that's what that yellow line shows. And these are all patients with breast cancer, and they're all below their age match decline. So it's a, it's a serious issue. It's, it's something that um, uh, you know, a lot of women with breast cancer don't understand. They'll realize uh, the risk that they're, they're being placed at uh, in, not, in not considering doing something about exercise post-diagnosis. Um, so I just end up, we did a trial, uh, and I was involved in this with Lee, where we did uh, serial acquisition of, of a bunch of different uh, uh, factors, uh, plasma circulating endothelial progenitors and endothelial cell function in patients with uh, uh, stage 2B3C uh, breast cancer. They got, they got randomized to get uh, AC chemotherapy, four, four cycles of AC chemotherapy, uh, with or without aerobic training. So 10 of them went this direction, 10 went that direction. 
And then uh, we looked at, and this, this is the exercise prescription for these patients, and uh, then they went on to get definitive treatment after that. And the main thing I want to show you is what happens to cardiovascular function in these patients. So um, the, um, the, if they, you could see that patients who got AC chemotherapy by itself showed a slight decline in cardiopulmonary function after treatment, but the patients who exercised actually had an improvement in cardiopulmonary function, and that difference was significant. And this is a short period of time after, this is after the four cycles of AC chemotherapy, so it's about six months of aerobic training that these patients underwent. So um, uh, what I want to conclude with this part is that um, is that uh, exercise maintains cardiopulmonary fitness even through chemotherapy treatment. That's kind of by itself rather eye-opening, I think. And, uh, and that improved cardiopulmonary fitness is associated with prolonged survival. That's the epidemiologic data. And uh, as I said, it, it prolonged survival post-cancer diagnosis for patients with breast, colorectal, and prostate. Um, the effects of exercise on tumor growth and metastasis, though, uh, is not established in humans. And uh, so when we came to Duke uh, in, uh, about 10 years ago, we set about trying to look at this and try to understand it. And so that's what the rest of this talks about, really. Um, we did a, uh, a rather extensive review that we published in Cancer Research uh, last year. And um, what we're looking at here is the relative effect of exercise on, uh, on tumor growth, uh, measures of tumor growth. And these, uh, so this is looking at change in rel relative to controls in terms of tumor growth. And for the majority of pa papers that are published in rodents, it looks like tumor growth is inhibited, but you notice there are a few where it actually goes up. Um, and this is, again, a different way of looking at it. Same kind of thing. You have most of them showing a decline, but there are some cases where it goes up. And in, particularly, I want you to notice here, under, if you stratify by histology, the ones in which you see accelerated growth are all breast cancer. Um, so that's interesting. It uh, went ahead by itself. Anyway. Um, so we could think about, well, what, what could it be? How could exercise accelerate tumor growth or decelerate it? What are the things that could happen? And uh, we need to first think about exercise itself and what it does. And there are mediators of the exercise response, particularly skeletal muscle, which is a huge metabolic organ or a series of organs within the body that has a profound influence on metabolism. And as you, if you exercise a lot, muscle is going to be the dominant uh, metabolic organ within your body that's going to be consuming nutrients. Um, uh, there are other tissues that might be involved in there too, but exercise is the main thing. And there are systemic host pathways that, act, that are activated with exercise. You have metabolism being changed, you know, circulating insulin levels go down, glucose levels go down, there's effects on IGF-1 and so forth. Oxidative balance gets changed, oxidative stress, immune surveillance changes. Uh, inflammation and cytokines, you get changes in VEGF levels circulating. Uh, it's been shown, for example, that people who exercise have elevated levels of VEGF in their heart, and that increases uh, uh, capillary density within the heart. Um, sex hormone levels change, and stress response changes. And, um, and then there could be things happening in the tumor. You could have uh, effects on angiogenesis, cell signaling and apoptosis, cell, uh, cell division, um, things having to do with epithelial mesenchymal transition, metabolism, so on. So I'm going to start out. Hal asked me to put something about hypoxia in here. So I'm, uh, this is my first hypoxia statement. Um, and I, I spent a lot of my career studying hypoxia. I told somebody this morning I published over 100 papers on the subject of tumor hypoxia. And a lot of that was fundamental work, trying to understand the factors that influence oxygen transport in tumors. And my strong colleague, or my, my longtime colleague, uh, Tim Seckham, is an applied mathematician, University of Arizona. And uh, Tim and I worked together over the years and published a number of papers um, and he, he models oxygen transport, but he would never model it without me giving him data. 
So he, he, would, he said, I will not model something for you if you don't give me the data to feed into this model. So it's my, uh, he's in a way like an engineer. He just won't do anything without the data, right? So um, what we did in this case, this is uh, from a, a skinfold window. It's an actual vascular geometry in a, in a tumor. It's 500 microns on the side and 200 microns thick. Uh, we have the geometry. We knew what the oxygen consumption rate was in here. We measured that. We knew what the oxygen uh, content of the blood vessels was. We knew the red cell velocity and red cell flux within these vessels. All that data went into a model. And what Tim did then was a sensitivity study. He asked the question, what would it take to get rid of hypoxia in this little cube of tumor? And that's just a cross-section of what the oxygen field looks like in the middle of that thing. But over here is what I want to point out, and that is that uh, under baseline conditions of what the data I fed him, he predicted about 12% of that tumor would be less than one millimeter mercury. It's very hypoxic. And then the in silico data, the in silico simulation says, all right, you could increase the uh, flow rate of the, I'm sorry, the oxygen content of the blood, but you'd have to go up to 10, factor of 10 over baseline, which means you'd have to go to hyperbaric oxygen conditions, uh, two atmospheres, to get rid of it, to do it this way. You could try to increase flow rate, factor of three would do it, um, or you could try to reduce consumption rate. You know, consumption rate could drop it by 30% and completely eliminate hypoxia. So the point I want to make here is that, I, is that metabolism is a big effect on oxygen transport. It's the most dynamic effect of anything that you could look at, at least in this simulation, suggesting that if you can reduce oxygen consumption rate, that could have a profound influence on hypoxia. So we'll get back to that later. Okay, so I want to... Uh, First, show you what uh, in the models we've looked at, and also a couple of others that have been published. What happens to uh, to the uh, growth of tumors? And the first data I'm going to show you is from a xenograft, triple negative uh, breast cancer, and um, and just to show you that mice who uh, contain these are nude mice. These uh, that contain they had this tumor transplanted orthotopically, and uh, and they do run. If you notice, they run um, six or seven kilometers a day on a running wheel. So you put a running wheel in their cage, they like to do it. And you think, wow, that's amazing. Uh, they like to run. That's their natural foraging behavior, and they run mainly at night. And, uh, and they like to do it. And they'll get on the wheel and run. Then they'll hop off and eat a bunch of food and then jump back on and run some more. And they do that all night long. Um, and I told somebody an, an anecdote. I gave this talk at a veterinary conference one time, and one of the guys came up to me and he said afterward, one of the veterinarians, he said he had a son that um, had a hamster when he was a kid and, and the hamster eventually died and so he just took the, all the stuff, paraphernalia from the hamster and put it in a box and stuck it in the garage. And it had been out there several years sitting in this box and one day he was out there working on his car or something and he heard this squeaking noise and he went over and he looked in the box and here was a field mouse running on the running wheel. <laughs> so they really do like to do it. Okay. There's what one of the running wheels looks like. And it's connected to a computer so we can keep track of how much they run. All right, in this particular model, uh, there was no effect of exercise on growth rate. This is looking at the percent with survival, which is really the time for the tumors to reach humane endpoint. Uh, over time, uh, 1,500 cubic millimeters. So you can see there's no difference in the rate of growth. Um, there were other things that happened, though. The physiology of this tumor was changed profoundly, and we'll touch back on that. Um, this is a uh, uh, mouse prostate tumor line, a C C1 mouse prostate cancer. So this is in immune-confident mice. <coughs> and um, in order to do this, they had to sac mice, sacrifice mice at different times, and take the uh, prostate out and measure the weight of it. And, um, and there really was no effect of exercise on growth of the primary. But there was an effect on METs. You could see the, uh, the animals that exercised had a much lower rate of lymph node metastases. We'll touch back on that again later, but that, this is something to think about, is what does exercise affect metastasis? And this is one model where it looks like maybe it does. 
Okay, so uh, my student, uh, Alison Bitoff, uh, wanted to do the following study, and this is using the 41 mouse memory carcinoma, looking at orthotopic tumor growth. And, um, and what, in, in this example, what she did was pre-train mice for nine weeks. And first of all, so they were training before the tumor was transplanted here. And, uh, and then she had four groups, and I don't know how well that shows up, but she has group one, which are animals that ran before and after tumor transplant. So we think about the clinical relevance of a woman who's an uh, ec avid exerciser, is diagnosed with breast cancer, and asks the doctor, what can she do? The doctor says, keep running. So she keeps running after a diagnosis or after the tumor's uh, growing. You have another woman who is an active exerciser and finds out she has breast cancer and just gets depressed and stops running. So that's this group, the run and then sedentary. And then you have the group, uh, the woman who comes in who's sedentary ahead of time asks the doctor what to do, and the doctor says, start running. And so she starts running after she's diagnosed. And then you have the group that doesn't care, the couch potatoes who sit on the couch regardless. Okay, so we have these four groups, and we ask the question now, what happens to, to growth rate? Oh, and uh, I forgot about that. We also looked at running distances. You can see they're similar to what I showed you before. Um, okay, so it turns out that uh, it didn't, in this ex these experiments, it didn't matter when they exercised. This is the, the sedentary control, and all the exercise mice have a slower growth rate. So it didn't matter whether they, whether they ran before and after, or they only ran after, or whether they ran after and not before. Didn't matter. And these are just the, the tumor weights after the tumors were removed. So uh, we ended up lumping these groups together to compare to controls for the uh, publications that we put out on it. And, uh, and so here's the, uh, here's the data for the uh, primary tumor growth. You can see the exercise and control groups and the animals that exercise have a slower growth rate. Um, this is a different tumor. This is a uh, EO771 that grows in uh, C57 black mice. This is a Balb C mice. And these animals run to, and, and you can see, uh, again, a slowed growth rate in EO771. Um, I want to point out that the 41 is a triple negative uh, tumor, and EO771 is ERPR positive. <laughs> We're going to get back to year 771 again in a little while, so you keep that in mind. Um, we also did it in a PDX model. This is uh, a colorectal uh, PDX uh, model, and you can see there's not much effect initially, but after about 30 days, the controls start to grow faster than the uh, animals that exercise. And that difference was significant. We did that because, you know, the 41 grows really fast. All the action's over in about two or three weeks. And uh, we wanted to do something that had a slower growth rate. So uh, see the same effect there. Um, then uh, another student, Oliver Glass, who's a uh, CrossFit guy, uh, wanted to do something a bit more clinically relevant. And so he, uh, he put these mice on a treadmill um, at 70% VO2 peak, this is 20 minutes per minute, I'm sorry, 20 meters per minute for 60 minutes at a 15% incline. Somebody asked me this morning if mice could stand that, and they really didn't want to do it at first. But actually, as, as they did it more and more, they got, you could tell they were kind of excited about it. So Jack, you know about this. We start, the mouse gets up to the treadmill, his tail's between his legs, the ears are down, and they have to prod him to get him to go on it. And after a few days, comes walking in, tail straight in the air, ears are up, ready to get on the treadmill. <laughs> you know, so they they would acclimatize themselves to that. Um, he looked at two tumor lines. You have EO seven seven one, which even though it's ERPR positive, uh, the genomic data of this tumor shows that it's clot and low phenotype which is a, a very de-differentiated kind of mammary tumor. And then this uh, C3-tag tumor, which is also classified as clot and low. Um, and he did this, I mean, this is a graduate student. He did this in the middle of the night. did this training every night, in the middle of the night, you know. And that's what you have to do when you're a graduate student, right? So, um, but he wanted to simulate their natural foraging behavior rather than making them doing it during, a day, during the day. 
And here's what we find is that aerobic training increases the growth rate of the C3 tag tumor. Here's the data. You can see it here, or you can look here. And the EO771, as I showed you before, it decreases growth rate. Okay? Both of them classified as clot and low, as far as the genomic data shows, but completely different response to exercise. One accelerates growth, the other one decelerates growth. Uh, here's a data from another paper that came out last year. It's a really good paper from Shadler from Oncotarget. And, uh, and they show the same thing in a B16F10, that exercise accelerates growth uh, compared to, to no exercise. So it's not just us. Uh, other people have seen this. So, you know, what, what could it be? What's going on here? We have a couple of tumors here where you get accelerated growth. We have uh, some tumors where there's no effect. You can't read that too well, but uh, it's not important. I'm not going to show the data on those anyway. And then inhibits growth in these. So potential mechanisms could be following that you could have alteration in nutrient supply. As I mentioned earlier, the muscle may be stealing nutrients from the tumor, and that could in some, uh, some way affect how the tumor responds uh, to exercise. Hypoxia could be playing a role here. Metabolism, uh, cell death versus proliferation, and uh, we can't rule out immune function as being a, a playing a role here because these are all immune competent. Other than the MDA, MB231 line, which I showed you initially, everything else is in immune competent mice. Um, so we look at, let's look at perfusion first. Uh, so Allison's work showed that um, there's an increase in perfusion. This is just looking at the uh, microvessel density uh, in sedentary versus running. And then the interesting thing was that not only did the vessel density go up, but the, the vessel maturity also increased. And what we're looking at here is pericyte coverage by staying by two different, mechan two different ways of looking at it. But pericyte coverage, which is a marker of vessel uh, maturity, uh, increased in this uh, tumor. So increased perfusion, but also increased uh, um, maturity. I want to remind you as I go through this that this tumor has, is growth inhibited. So I want to keep, keep, help you keep track of what's going on here. Growth inhibited, perfusion goes up, but the growth rate of this tumor goes down. We also measured this with MRI um, using this technique here. And, uh, and this is looking at some of these MRI Im images. With the 4T1, it does show a slight increase in perfusion, but also I think we point out that the um, uh, uniformity of perfusion improves with exercise here. And this is EO771, which also shows a very profound increase in perfusion, which is highly significant. And PC1. All right, so let's just look at this again. Growth inhibited. Here, growth was unaffected. Perfusion goes up, whether or not growth is inhibited or not affected. But it, is, so it doesn't seem to be related to that. Um, the MDA MP231 also showed an increase in perfusion. We did this just like looking at Hooks, which is a perfusion marker dye. And again, in, in that tumor, perfusion went up. And again, that one was not affected. Growth rate was not affected. This is getting back to the work of Shatner. Um, this tumor uh, showed accelerated growth, and it shows also an increase in, in uh, vessel maturity. Not a, not a change in microvessel density, but vessel maturity went up. Okay, well, if perfusion's going up, one might expect that hypoxia would go down. Um, and we saw that. We used this hypoxia marker dye called EF5. Uh, it's a dye that you, it's a drug that you can give to, uh, to uh, an individual. And <coughs> hypoxic areas will take this drug up and convert it to a reactive uh, uh, drug that then binds to proteins and creates an adduct that you can detect with immunohistochemistry. But it only occurs in hypoxic viable cells. And so the pinkish areas here are areas that are EF5 positive. And, uh, and you can see the hypoxic tumor area goes down um, in the exercise mice. 
Again, that one's growth inhibited. So more perfusion, less hypoxia, tumor growth goes down. Um, this is the PDX model I showed you earlier. Hypoxia goes down in that model as well. In that, tumor is growth inhibited. Um, the MDA MB231, we didn't actually measure hypoxia, but we did measure HIF. <coughs> and what we found, actually, interestingly, was HIF1 levels went up with hypoxia. I mean, with exercise. Everybody know what HIF is? Hypoxia-inducible factor. It's a hypoxia-inducible transcription factor. Um, so, um, and HIF1, VEGF levels went up in this tumor as well. So, uh, part of the reason that angiogenesis or the perfusion is increasing probably because of uh, increased angiogenesis being stimulated uh, by HIF1 activation and VEG, an increase in VEGF. We saw an in increase in VEGF in the 4T1 tumor as well. Um, C3, the C1 prostate tumor also showed an increase in HIF and an increase in VEGF. Remind you, perfusion increase occurred in the C1 prostate tumor, and uh, HIF1 levels go up. Hypoxia goes down. This is a conundrum that we don't, we're still struggling with. How could hypoxia go down and HIF1 levels go up? And it's going to be some non-hypoxia-related regulated mechanism that's going on here. Um, just looking at angiogenic signaling uh, in the 4T1 tumor, this, again, we see an increase in VEGF um, and also a decrease in PDF GFR beta. That's involved in the vessel maturity, and in fact, the decrease is consistent with the increase in pericyte coverage that we see um, in this. So this has to do with the vessel maturity. So... Um, the mechanisms that might be involved in here, again, might, might include HIF. The HIF is involved in increasing angiogenesis, but the decrease in PDGFR beta is going to promote pericyte coverage. And the other thing that's probably important here is shear stress. And shear stress, um, I'm going to get into in a second, um, probably plays a role in the increase in vessel maturity. And this has to do with this transcription factor called NFAT. It's a, uh, a transcription factor that controls thrombospondin expression, which is a uh, cytokine that uh, is uh, uh, anti, it promotes vessel maturity. Um, so, <clears throat> we look, this is the work from Shadler again. If you look at uh, B16F10, again, I showed you before that exercise accelerates growth in this tumor um, if you give uh, that, if you do that. But if you take mice that, uh, where you block NFAT transcription, you can actually reverse that effect. So now exercise slows the growth in the presence of uh, cyclosporin, which inactivates NFAT. So um, the, let me get, let's see. The other thing I want to mention here is just looking at NFAT levels here under control conditions in vitro versus uh, in vitro conditions where shear stress is increased, and you can see NFAT level levels going up. So, you know, if you think you're exercising, the uh, shear stress within those blood vessels is going to go up because perfusion is increasing, and so that uh, could be influencing uh, this uh, this factor here. Um, so here's the kind of proof of principle here. It said thrombospondin is a target of NFAT. Um, and you can see, uh, again, if the cells with shear, you get an increase in thrombospondin here. And you could also see it in lungs from mice that have been exercising. Um, but here, what he's done is, what they've done is to look under control conditions um, with uh, no exercise. Here's the growth rate. With exercise, it's not affected too much. Gemcitabine slows the growth, and gem plus exercise slows it even further. If you, if you knock out thrombospondin by floxing it out, uh, you have this uh, protective effect of gem plus exercise goes away. Okay? Here's gem plus exercise here. Under control, you knock out thrombospondin, and that 
knocks out the protective effect. So um, what we think is happening here is that shear stress is playing a role in the vessel maturity. Also, the platelet-derived refractor beta receptor um, is involved in it as well. Okay, so physical activity and prescribed exercise increase angiogenesis. I think we could say that. Uh, increases vessel maturity, increases perfusion, and increases oxygenation or decreases hypoxia. Um, but I would say these changes are not consistent related to the effects of exercise on tumor growth rate. B16 melanoma is accelerated with growth. It still has an increase in perfusion, but, uh, but it, its growth rate is accelerated, whereas all the other models I showed you um, there's an increase in perfusion, but growth rate is either unaffected or goes down. So what I can say is that there's changes. It's true, true, and unrelated that perfusion is changing as a result of exercise. It's probably not the dominant factor in what affects growth rate. <coughs> so um, we started looking at HIF uh, because HIF is an important molecule a transcription factor that regulates, uh, it has a role in regulating angiosis, but it also affects metabolism. And, um, and so we thought it might be interesting to take a look at this. And, um, it, you know, exercise could increase the rate of HIF-1-alpha synthesis. HIF-1-alpha is the labile subunit of, of HIF that is uh, regulated so precisely under aerobic conditions it can even, it's translationally modified. Uh, to be ubiquitinated through the VHL complex. Um, but um, under hypoxic conditions, it becomes stabilized because the enzyme protohydroxylase uh, is no longer functional and allows HIF-1-alpha to, to build up. Um, so if you had an increased rate of HIF-1-alpha synthesis, even under aerobic conditions, it could uh, overwhelm the ability to degrade it, in which case that could happen. But we looked at that. And I'm not going to show you the data, but there was no evidence that uh, that, that was happening. Um, the other option would be that the proloidoxylase is being blocked. It can be blocked by hypoxia, can be blocked by oxidative stress, can be blocked by metabolic intermediates, uh, or lactate. And so we'll talk about that a little bit. So it could be something related to that that is uh, promoting hip one alpha stabilization. Um, so this is work from my uh, former postdoc, Pierre Sonbeau, uh, looking at the HIF-1-alpha expression. This is in HUVEX cells under uh, control conditions or conditions of elevated lactate, which are, are typical of tumors. And typical uh, lactate levels in your blood or your tissue as you're sitting in here in this room is around 1 to 2 millimolar. If you go out and run an air marathon, it'll go up to 8, um, maybe 4 to 8. Um, in tumors, it can be as high as 20 millimolar. can be very, very high in tumors. So what we're looking at here is expression, or the amount of HIF, uh, alpha, alpha expression under aerobic conditions, uh, I think, when 20 millimolar lactate, which is not unusual in a tumor. You can see it goes up by a factor of two. <coughs> and this is just looking at the concentration dependence. You can see it's really mostly actions occurring around, uh, say, around 10 millimolar or higher. Um, this is looking at uh, trying to block this by using, uh, he tried L-name, which is an inhibitor of nitric oxide synthase, has no effect on it, uh, but using a, a blocker of the transporter that takes lactate into cells, uh, cinemate, uh, which blocks the MCT1 transporter, and knocks this back down. So the lactate has to get inside the cell in order for this to occur. And, um, and here you can see where he's done some stuff with gels that are implanted, and you get an increase in angiogenesis, but you can block that uh, by adding this uh, cinnamate, which blocks the lactate transport. All right, so where's the lactate coming from? I mean, it, the tumor itself has elevated lactate, but it could be that it's even further processed just by uh, exercise. So this is looking at blood lactate, um, after uh, reaching VO2 max, you can see it going up, here in this case, up to about 5 millimolar. This is black lactate plus, this is 60 seconds after VO2 max. And it takes, you can see what happens here. It goes up to a peak, around 15 millimolar, 
and then comes back down. It takes about an hour to come back down again. So this kind of burst of lactate that's circulating around, being generated by your muscles, could be affecting the tumor in some way to uh, stimulate stabilization of HIF. E- even though the hypoxia levels are going down, it could be the back metabolism of lactate that does that. And what people have shown, and Pierre showed in this paper, is that lactate gets back converted to pyruvate and then to succinate. Succinate itself is a metabolite that blocks the function of the proteohydroxylase. It blocks the degradation of HIP1 alpha. <coughs> So uh, if we look at the C3 tag tumor, which has an accelerated growth, you can see HIF1-alpha levels going up. If you look at the EO771, which has decelerated tumor growth rate, HIF1-alpha levels go down. Up, down. Okay? (coughs) So I can't say that it's all due to systemic effects because these mice are running the same or being exercised the same way. So it's not that. And in fact, we looked at creatine kinase levels in the muscle of both of these <coughs> types of mice that have been exercising, and, uh, and they showed that they had equivalent amounts of exercise. So it's not that. So the, the HIF1 alpha levels are being affected some other way besides circulating levels of lactate. Um, if we take that C3 tag tumor, which has the elevated level of HIF, and we block HIF by giving it a digoxin, which blocks HIF-1 alpha synthesis, we can reverse the effects. So remind you, this tumor shows accelerated growth with exercise. And so if we look at this, um, this is aerobic training alone. Um, There, the purple bar. Um, If we take the green bar, that's aerobic training with digoxin. So it completely reverses it, so you can inhibit the accelerated growth by inhibiting the activation of HIF-1-alpha. And here's the data showing HIF-1-alpha going down with digoxin in these mice. So I think what I can say, at least now, is that the accelerated growth that we see in some of these tumors may be due <coughs> to increase HIF. I still don't know why HIF is going up. I honestly don't know. We're completely puzzled by this. We've looked at oxidative stress. We don't see anything there. Um, not with the exclusive methods you have, but we looked at it with looking at glutathione levels and things like that are not different. So it's not that. Uh, we looked at the lactate story, which I just showed you, but that doesn't explain it either. Um, here's what we find is that the EO771 shows a decrease in proliferation in response to exercise. So the tumor cells are proliferating less, and that would explain the fact that it has a slower growth rate. The C3 tag shows an uh, increase in proliferation. So the difference in growth rate is due to that. And we also looked at, uh, at uh, apoptosis, and there was no effect. That's what's shown down here. So this is not being driven by changes in apoptosis. It's being driven by changes in proliferation. So as we got to think about this, uh, we thought that there might be some reason to think about metabolism. Um, uh, and I do want to also want to point out that DO771, if proliferation rate goes down by a factor of two, oxygen consumption rate is going to go down. Um, and so this tumor should be less hypoxic. Um, this one here, the proliferation rate goes up, and depending on what's driving it, uh, that could increase oxygen consumption. Okay, so um, the first thing we looked at was a downstream target of HIF, which is called PDK1. PDK1 is the master regulator. It's the, end, the kinase that controls whether a cell is going to go, is going to use aerobic or anaerobic metabolism. If PDK1 levels go up, as they show here in the, in the C3 tag tumor, that tumor is going to be pushed toward anaerobic metabolism. Um, if it's unaffected, as it's shown here in EO771, then it's not going to care. But this, this shows here that probably this tumor is more, moving more toward anaerobic metabolism. And that, as you know, anaerobic metabolism allows or permits the production of precursors for proliferation. Lipid precursors, DNA, other, uh, proteins, other things that are going to be important for, for proliferation. <coughs> so 
We did some stuff with Jason Lucasau, who's a, 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 an expert in metabolism at Duke, and these are just some heat maps. Um, and this side over here is the, um, the uh, C3 tag tumor, and this side over here is Z0771. You can see, without knowing what these things are, that the heat, heat patterns look different. Um, and uh, just to, again, not to beat a dead horse here, but there's the thing. Um, the, um, what we find is that there, these are some of the things that are affected. Um, so phenylalanine, trip, this is uh, tyrosine tryptophan synthesis, uh, glutamine and glutamate uh, metabolism, that's related to TCA cycle. Linoleic acid metabolism has to do with fatty acid oxidation. Um, and then some other things down there. So um, it, it, it looks like um, that there's a difference in lipid metabolism going on here as well as a change in the uh, TCA cycle. Um, going back to 4T1 where we use the running wheel instead of the one hour of exercise a day, we also see evidence for uh, fatty acid oxidation uh, going up. So uh, suggesting that the tumor is switching over to a different type of metabolism with exercise. So um, I think what I can say here is that physical activity and prescribed exercise increase angiogenesis, increase perfusion, increase oxygenation, uh, but again, these are not related uh, to the effects of exercise on tumor growth rate. Um, Physical activity and exercise alter tumor metabolism. HIF may be playing a role here. But I th we've only looked at it really in a couple of tumor models. I think we need to understand more what's going on here. We need to do a deeper dive into this, uh, what's controlling HIF and why it's different in different tumors. Okay, I want to go on then to talk a little bit about what happens if you treat a tumor um, uh, in an exercising animal with a uh, drug. And we did that with 4T1. Uh, so we're doing use cyclophosphamide um, in this tumor because this tumor is completely resistant to doxorubicin, so we couldn't use it uh, here. It is sensitive to cyclophosphamide. And, um, and so uh, this is what's happened. We do the chemo. I'm sorry, we do the injection of the tumor, and then we do the, uh, the chemo injection points are shown here. We gave three doses of cyclophosphamide. And... Um, and so here's what happens with no treatment at all. Here's what happens with cyclophosphamide. The green is exercise alone, and the blue is combined. I want to point out here, in this model, exercise works as well as chemotherapy to inhibit tumor growth. Exercise works as well as chemotherapy to inhibit tumor growth. And this is a maximally tolerated dose of chemo. Couldn't give any more extra, any more chemo here. This is what you can get, and the two together are additive. They're not synergistic, but there is an additive effect uh, when you add the two together. Again, going back to Shadler's paper, this is B16F10. Again, this is exercise alone, accelerated growth, doxorubicin alone. Combination of doxorubicin exercise inhibits growth. That makes sense, right? Because what you're doing is you're stimulating that tumor to proliferate more. It's going to be more sensitive to chemo. And that's what you see. And the same is true for this uh, pancreatic tumor, too. You get inhibited growth with gemcitabine plus exercise. Okay. You get, uh, with this tumor, uh, you get an increase in drug delivery. Well, we know that because the perfusion is going up, so the drug delivery goes up. Um, we did a, uh, a study with, uh, with radiation, um, and I forgot to put in uh, more details about it. We, did, we gave, when the tumors reached about 200 cubic millimeters, we did three times five gray, and when the tumors reached about 100 cubic millimeters. And so this Kappa-Meyer plot, again, looking at time to reach uh, endpoint volume, and uh, these are sedentary mice. Exercise alone has a, a little bit of an effect radiation, and then the combination. The combination is significant. So we have a significant prolongation of, of growth time. Uh, the, the animals had to be housed at 30 degrees in order to see this effect. Uh, at 22 degrees, which is normal housing temperature, we didn't see it. Uh, 
Um, so I don't know, I mean, you guys are familiar with the work of Betsy Rapasky at Roswell Park, who's published on this recently, but the normal thermic temperature for mice is 30 degrees. It's not 22. And when you, you house mice at 22 degrees, it severely stresses them. They spend a lot of metabolic energy just maintaining their body temperature. It compromises their immune function. They're not able to mount an adequate immune response against tumor. If you raise their body temperature to 30 degrees, much more profound anti-tumor effect as a, as a consequence of tumor immunity. So what I can say here is that obviously an immune effect is probably playing a role in this because, again, at 22 it doesn't work, at 30 it does. Now, this tumor really metastasizes, and we had a luciferase reporter gene in here, and I want to point out that there, um, the, uh, the blue here is the a group that had the combined, these are the METs, and over here are the controls, or exercise alone here. Um, and so there didn't seem to be an effect on metastasis, but I want to point out that the animals that got the combined lived longer. So they're going to be at an increased risk for developing mats longer than the controls with kids act earlier. Okay? So it's called competing risks. If you don't control for that, you can't really figure out whether or not you're enhancing metastasis or not. So we worked with a statistician to try to sort this out. He came up with a brilliant idea. He said, take the lungs out, section them, and measure the size of the tumors. Measure the size and also how many there are, how many tumors there are. And from that, I can do a statistical model to predict when the tumors metastasized and how fast they were growing in the lung. So uh, this is an example of the smallest tumor we could find. Um, and it's known that this particular tumor, the 41, metastasizes not as single cells but as clumps, typically around four to six cells. That's, typically, that's about what we have here. So that's the smallest one we can find. Um, and so if we look at the growth, growth rate of the METs under controls, this is the data for controls. This is um, uh, physical activity of, by itself. Uh, this is radiation, and this is a combined. So uh, you get a slowing of the growth rate within the lung. Again, these are animals that are housed at 30 degrees. A slowing of the growth rate within the lung with radiation, would you also see it with the physical activity? Um, and it's not any better with the combined than it is with radiation alone. Uh, if we look at implantation time, and this is the data uh, looking at the implantation time for multiple tumors uh, measured in each lung. Um, in the controls, it's about eight days. Um, in the physical activity group, it's about nine, was that 9.6 days? And radiation prolongs that to 11, and then the control out to 13. And these differences are significant. So what's happening is that the exercise is not only affecting the growth rate of the lung metastases, which is probably related to, to the, uh, some of the effects that we see in, uh, uh, on, in a primary tumor in terms of emitting growth, but also possibly immune effects. But also it's delaying the implantation time. I think that has to do with the fact that the vessels are more mature in the primary tumor. We showed that. And the tumor cells have a more difficult time getting out, so it takes them longer to get out, and that's probably why the implantation time is prolonged. Um, this, we also looked at this in this, this transgenic mouse. This is effective exercise on growth in the primary and control, and, um, and here we can see a decrease in METs associated with exercise. There's not been a lot done with exercise and metastasis. Most of the work that's been done has been done using, by doing tail vein injections, which is completely meaningless in my opinion. And so these data I just showed you some of the very first that's ever looked at spontaneous metastasis and how exercise might affect that. So I think it's very encouraging to think that um, the, the part of the uh, prolongation of survival that we might see in in women, say, post-diagnosis of breast who do exercise, um, may be decreasing the risk that they're going to develop metastases. All right, Jack, we're going to get back to this now, Hal. Um, and that is to say that uh, I showed you that the proliferation rate goes down, and that has a profound effect on oxygen consumption rate. And, and so what I can say is that we're part of the fact that the uh, hypoxia goes down probably has to do with this. 
I think it's also, though, the perfusion goes up. And here we're not talking about perfusion of existing vessels, but more vessels that are coming in, many more. And so this curve here is being shifted over because there's more uh, vessels present. I'm, I'm not shifted that way. It's being shifted that way because there's more vessels there. So probably the decrease in hypoxia is a result of a reduction in metabolism and an increase in perfusion. I don't know of any other treatment that does that. I don't know of any other treatment that decreases hypoxic fraction by reducing metabolism and increasing perfusion. Uh, and I think that's what makes this amazing. And it makes it amazing because it's cheap. You could jo go join a gym. That's all you've got to do, right? Or even just go walking. I mean, it, there's, you know, it's a, a very healthy, cost-effective way to have an impact on cancer. Okay. Well, I've been over this... Let me skip this part. How much exercise is enough? I often get asked this by cancer patients, and, you know, I'm not a doctor. So what I'm going to say is that the uh, AACR guidelines and the NIH guidelines say that you should walk eight med hours a week. That's, the, that's what's published. Um, that's risk walking two and a half hours a week. Uh, we don't, well, we don't know. We don't know the intensity. We don't know the duration per episode. We don't know how many times a week to do it. We don't know whether it should be, be have prescribed by VO2 max. We don't know whether interval training is better than steady state. We don't know whether there's a plateau above which there's no further benefit. We don't know whether exercise accelerates progression in any, in any human tumor. We don't know that right now. We don't know whether weight training makes any difference. These are all things we don't know. What I can tell you is there's no pill that can substitute for exercise that I know of. I'm often asked that. You know, can't I just take a statin? No, that won't do it. Okay. So um, I just want to acknowledge uh, Lee Jones, my, my great friend and colleague, who was at Duke for 10 years and then left, got recruited away to Memorial now. He runs a big exercise oncology program there. Allison Bitoff was my graduate student. They did all the 4T1 work. Kate Ashcraft did the work with the radiation. Oliver did the stuff with the transgenic mouse model, the C3 tag. Ben Villante was the one, one of the first people that collaborated with Lee Jones. Uh, Jason has done all the metabolism stuff, and Tim, my longtime friend, has done such stalwart work in uh, oxygen transport modeling. And that's it. Thank you for your attention. Thank you. That, that was extraordinary and so many lessons to learn from that. Uh, we need to have you come back and have you here all day talking to us. Uh, I'm particularly pleased to see that having known that our tissue culture conditions are terrible, to learn that our animal conditions are terrible also. Yeah. Uh, questions? Where? Yes. I want to ask you, uh, did you control the quantity of the food? Oh. Or not? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> yeah, thanks for bringing that up. We actually measured body weight. Uh, we didn't control the food, but they had ad limitum access to food. Their body weights, they, they gained weight at the same rate. Um, so they were compensating for the exercise by eating more. So body weights were the same. But they get better at that. Oh, yeah, they had to eat more. Yeah, definitely. But it's strange, you know, you've analyzed so many parameters, but did not uh, control the weight and the ratio tumor weight and weight, total weight of the animal. Uh, I'm not sure how we can control the tumor weight versus the animal's weight. But like I said, you know, the, the growth... Yeah, the, the animals gained weight at the same rate, so we can't explaining the results by the fact that the animals that exercised were weighed less, which has been shown by other people. If you restrict caloric intake, that can slow tumor growth. That wasn't the case here. Brian. I mean, I forget if you, are, are there certain subclasses of human tumors that you would expect would be more, have a more pronounced effect from this? Like certain types of tumors based on the perfusion or the lack of perfusion or... 
I, I, I can't say. I think, I think it's something that is completely open-ended right now. So uh, it's begging for studies to really understand what's happening. Yeah. Are there any studies going on at Duke? Uh, at Memorial, there aren't. Yeah, there is stuff going on at Duke, but not with perfusion measurements right now. Okay, uh, so it is 1 o'clock, and uh, so I think we'll, if there are further questions, Mark will be up here for a couple of minutes anyway. And once again, Mark, it was absolutely fabulous. Thank you very much for coming, and I hope you don't have a chat. Thank you.